This episode is brought to you by Portland Distro. If you love underground music and movies, go to portlanddistro.com for licensed shirts, vinyl, CDs, and more. Go to portlanddistro.com. Plug in the discount code MikeHill666 for 15% off at portlanddistro.com. Hey everyone, welcome to this week's episode. We have William Saunders of Fourth Media. He's the mastermind behind the Dead Guy Killing Music documentary. I was fortunate enough to catch the debut, the premiere of this great documentary about one of my favorite bands. And uh, yeah, please keep an eye out for any showings of this film in your city. Once again, I always forget this part, but uh, if you enjoyed the show, please share, please leave a review, and please subscribe. You can follow me on Instagram, Michael DC Hill. You can follow us on Facebook, Everything Went Black Podcast. Congratulations, William. A few weeks ago, I met you at the premiere of Dead Guy Killing Music, this wonderful documentary that you did. So I just want to give you congratulations. Ah, thank you. Uh, wonderful is a very flowery term for it. <laughs> uh, I believe in using irony in um, sparing <laughs> sort of uh, circumstances. And there's, oh. you know, the, the dead guy music, as great as it is, wonderful is definitely an ironic term. Absolutely. Yeah. Was that your first outing? Uh, you know, it seems like in the last few weeks, last month or so, uh, large gatherings have been a thing. So uh, was that like uh, overwhelming or how did, how did you, uh, you know, how do you, how do you manage during the premiere? The, the premiere was all right. I mean, I had been, I had put so much work into in getting it all put together, not only just like editing and, you know, getting the color and the mix, but, you know, burning the Blu-ray disc and like, I don't have a Blu-ray player in my house. So I had to like go to a friend's house to make sure the Blu-ray worked. And um, so kind of by the time I got there, I was, I was almost relieved by the time I walked into that place. Um, it was, it was a little weird being around people for sure. Um, the, the bigger weird part was the show the next day. That was like, I actually got a little nervous. Like I felt, I felt dirty. Like I shouldn't be here, but yeah. Um, yeah, I think the, uh, the crowd, the crowd at the bar was good and it, it was, it was, a, it felt like a big, nice open bar, you know, like it had play, it, it had, it was a big room. So I didn't, I didn't feel like too claustrophobic about it. Yeah, it was a great atmosphere, man, because um, I'd, I'd been to that venue a couple times in the past, and um, I really like that underground art space in Philly. And, yeah, it was um, cool. That, yeah. that was my first time there. Yeah, just the, um, you know, I, I was fine driving down, and then I, I, I've i only been out like two or three times prior to that, that event, and um, when I got there, I'm like, oh, wow, I should probably maybe have a mask on, you know, I don't know, I and I partially wore one and partially didn't you know they checked everyone's status at the door which was good and you know and, and um yeah it's just it's just sort of uh trying to figure out i guess what the uh, protocol is and what makes people comfortable you know right yeah I, and i think it's the same thing too i was like sometimes i didn't have my mask on i was like shit i should have my mask on and then like i hope you know i, I feel like if people were comfortable with it you know they I feel like people took their own health into their own hands a little bit, you know, and if, if they felt uncomfortable, then they masked up and, and everything. But, you know, I felt fine. I was fully vaccinated and ready to go. So the question is, Dead Guy, though very influential, is a relatively obscure band. So I, I'm glad you made a documentary about them because uh, to me, they're, uh, they've always been a, a household name. But what inspired you to do a documentary on Dead Guy? Well, it was kind of it was kind of a long story. Um, I work for a reality TV show. Uh, I'm an editor and producer, and uh, this like 20 24 year old millennial casting director comes into my office. She's like, "Oh my God, Bill, have you ever heard of a band called Dead Guy?" Because like clear, clearly, I was like, "I'm the metal guy of the office," like clearly. And I was like, "Yeah," I was like, "Fixation on a Coworker was a seminal post hardcore record in the mid '90s," and she just kind of looks at me. She's like okay, well, the drummer just submitted a tape. And I was like, oh, cool, let me check it out. And, you know, I never had seen pictures of Dead Guy. Like, I didn't, you know, I had, I had no idea really what they looked like. Um, so I went and watched it, and I was like, oh, that was cool. And I went to my boss, and I was like, hey, you know, if, if, 
if this gets approved by the network and they get accepted, like, can I, can I edit the show? And my boss was like, yeah, no problem. Like, you know, far enough, we'll put it down on your schedule. And, uh, a couple weeks later, they're like, do you just want to go on the shoot? And I was like, I absolutely, I would absolutely love to go on the shoot. Uh, so they sent me over to Amsterdam a couple days in, you know, Dave and I were talking, he's a super nice guy. Uh, we're talking about music, you know, check out this band, check out that band. A couple days in, I was like, we should just do a documentary about Dead Guy. I was like, nobody knows anything about how the band ended or how the band, you know, like what, nobody knows what happened. You know, there's no Twitter, there's no Facebook, nobody knows. And he's like, yeah, sure, let's do it. Um, and originally it was just going to be like a, like a 30 minute kind of, you know, time capsule about fixation on a coworker. Right. Um, and then I got back to New York and I wrote up an outline. I sent it to him. He's like, this looks awesome. Uh, let's do it. And I'm like, great, let's get a hold of the guys. And he's like, all right, yeah, let's start getting a hold of them. So that, and that, that became like the first, uh, challenge of, of getting everybody into the same room. But it was, yeah, it was kind of a strange, strange how it all went down. Now you mentioned a, a millennial, millennial coworker who probably was uh, born right around the time the uh, the band, uh, you know, broke up. Probably. <laughs> yeah, exactly. She had no idea who they were. Now, were were you, like, when when the band was functioning and operational, were, had, were you part of the the scene at that point? Were you were you seeing shows and had you seen them in, in their different incarnations? No, not at all. I was actually I was in college. Uh, in Michigan, I'm from Michigan originally, so I was uh, a freshman or sophomore in college, and at that time it was the um, it was like the victory push, right? So, kind of, you know, we were into Snapcase and Earth Crisis and all these bands, and then I found Dead Guy like in the bargain bin at my local record store, you know, the promo copy sent from from Victory, and I was like, oh, it's on Victory, like, you know, if it, I'll grab it, you know, and I listened to it, and I was like, this is fucking amazing. I uh, brought it home to my little bandmates. You know, I've always played in the band myself, and we mm-hmm. just, like, instantly loved it. Um, and then just, like, a few months later, you know, their new album came out, and it had, like, new members and stuff. So we were just, you know, we were just kind of like, okay. Like, you know, we, we didn't know what had happened. Um, but the, the love for Fixation on a Coworker, like, really stuck with all of us and inspired, you know, the, the next couple bands that I was in for sure. So I never, I never got to see them. They never came to Michigan. Um, you know, I was in a small town, so nobody came to that town. But yeah, um, yeah, that's how I, that's how I first came around to them. Yeah, that's um, it's it's funny because uh, I I kind of in the early '90s I'd kind of given up on hardcore. Really, I um, you know, I was obviously in the '80s when I was in high school. I was like into punk and hardcore and Black Flag, and I think like in the early '90s it was more like death metal, and then the uh the amphetamine reptile touch and go stuff like which people refer to as noise rock now but i just called it you know whatever and when i first heard dead guy first the name was weird i was like oh it's kind of a stupid name for a band and uh someone played it for me and it was like exactly what i wanted to hear and from day one i was like suddenly thinking about hardcore music again and and uh uh, I was like, originally I was like, well, Victory Records, it's all that like straight edge, like kind of tough guy, you know, like dudes with basketball shorts and stuff like that. And that wasn't my right. thing, but that kind of like made me think about that label in a different way too. And then of course I got into Bloodlet, Integrity and all that sort of stuff afterwards. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, that's, it's, uh, it was a hard sell, I think for a lot of people, but I think once that, once they had the push from Victory, there was like a year where it seemed like they were a band that people were into. Yeah, definitely. You know, I came, I kind of came from that same AMRAP, you know, Melvin's are my favorite band, you know, so I love that noisier type of stuff. I, I think at that point in my, in my life, I was just, if, if it was screaming and had a distorted guitar, I would listen to it. You know, I just wanted anything heavy at that point. So how long did this whole process take? I mean, uh, you know, it's my understanding that these guys really weren't that in touch and, you know, kind of all living in different places and, and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. I mean, te- technically it's still going on. I'm still kind of st- still getting pictures that I'm putting into to future cuts as well. Oh, okay. uh, but, but the whole thing, it was, uh, 
it would have been the spring of 2019 that I talked to Dave and then we put it together through the fall. You know, my first interview was in the fall of 2019. Um, and then, yeah, just kind of rolled over into the next year and then, and then COVID hit and we released that first trailer with the idea to have it out in the fall. But as things started to crumble, everybody was stuck at home and I kind of, I just started reaching out to random people, you know, people that I never would have been able to afford to like fly to go do an interview with, you know, uh, like Randy Blythe. I just, I hit him up on Instagram. I was like, Hey, I heard you were a fan of dead guy. Would you like to sit down for an interview? And he's like, yeah, you know, it's like, how, how about Tuesday? We're like, all right, yeah, Tuesday it is, you know? So th that happened a lot with a lot of different people and slowly the, the, the story started to really expand. You know, we would talk to somebody who was like, oh man, I, you know, I was at this show and this crazy shit happened. And then, you know, a, a couple people, a couple interviews later, somebody would be like, yeah, I have footage of that show. And I was like, oh shit. All right. So like now that's a part, you know, and we just kind of, it just kind of just progressed and, uh, and just evolved into the story being more about just fixation on a coworker, and and really just turned into like the career spanning um kind of take on it yeah well there's definitely a, a big story to tell there just you know even even with the uh, sort of peculiar nature of the band and how there was like basically two bands within their career you know right actually i'm one of those people who likes you know the the record that came after fixation i i i, I don't i I think I still I enjoy that album. Like I I own it. I listen to it every now and then. It's cool. Like there are some there are definitely two camps with that record. Right. No, it it fucking rips. I, I was I I like that album. I think Pops did a great job on those vocals. I mean, it's you know, Tim Singer is a unique voice for sure and can never be can never be replicated. Uh but he I thought he stepped up and really really put his all into it. And I don't I didn't think it sounded bad at all. Now I'd seen them play twice on that tour. Like they they came through. I was living in Boston at the time, and they came through with uh, Doc Hopper. Um, I checked that out, and then they were on that tour with Dead uh, with uh, Bloodlet, and um, I saw I saw a couple of shows on that tour, and I was totally thought it was cool, and I and I recognized Jim from being in Human Remains, and you know I was like, oh, this is a cool band. Like I, you know, sure I would love to have you know, had more music and tour touring from the original lineup, but I thought it was, it was cool nonetheless, you know? Yeah, definitely. It's uh there's some fucking killer riffs on that album. Like, yeah. Like really, really. Now it's funny. You mentioned that you didn't really know what they looked like or, you know, didn't know much about the band. Uh, and when you actually see the guys in the band, they're pretty unassuming guys. You know what I mean? Right. What, it, what was the image that you had in your mind of them just by knowing the music, like, back in the day? Like, you thought they were a bunch of, you know, like, like bloodthirsty, you know? <laughs> yeah, kind of, just, like, really angry, angry people. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, a, a level of anger that I had not reached fully. Uh, just, like, a, uh, a such a visceral lyrical style and and the the jagged riffs it was just like everything it was just like an you know it was an assault so to think about what they were like i probably assumed they were probably i just assumed they were just very angry people like always always scowling uh you know like ask them if, what they wanted in their coffee and they'd tell you to fuck off or something like that um <laughs> But yeah, I mean, and then coming to meet them and get to know them, they're like the bunch of jolliest, like fucking happy-go-lucky dudes, you know, kind of that I've ever met. They're, they're really a lot of fun. And from what I can tell, that's kind of how they were in a band, minus their personal relationships. Yeah, yeah, but being in With a band is always very uh, complicated sometimes, you know. Yeah, and, you know, and it, it was tough, you know, being in a band back then. It, was, it wasn't easy, you know, not that it's easy to tour now, but it's, it's certainly easier. <laughs> Yeah, I, that that era, man, was in the '90s. Definitely, um, without 
I mean, you had to catch people on the phone. You know what I mean? It was even before cell phones. So even, you know, doing any, getting anything done back then was like an order of magnitude harder than it is now. There was no email. There was no mobile technology. You had to call and, you know, people could duck you real easily back then, you know. Right. And put up flyers. You had to like go, somebody had to go put up flyers. Yeah. That's the, that's the other thing. You, you had to have a whole campaign in place to let people know when your shows were even happening. Yeah, fucking street teams and shit. That's crazy. <laughs> I kind of miss that, actually, seeing flyers. You know, I miss, I miss record stores in general. And then, you know, when you go into a record store, there's like you would see flyers for upcoming shows and things like that. I, I, I really miss all that, you know. Yeah, it's definitely it's, it's less exciting now. There's less anticipation in music nowadays. Like the band will release a single and then the next week they'll release a single. And then by the third week, I already forgot about it. And like then the album comes out and I'm like, oh, shit, I forgot about that. You know? Yeah. Now, prior to Dead Guy, was there anything that was that could prepare you for that band as far as uh, like for me, example, I, I listened to them and I was immediately like, OK, this is like Black Flag, but in the 90s from the East Coast. That was how my in, my sort of interpretation of the band was. Now, was there anything, any reference points prior to them that prepared you for what they were able to do musically? Uh, probably just like the like the class, you know, the classics, you know, Black Flag, Minor Threat. Um, just anything that was abrasive. I felt like I was just always looking for something that's crazy abrasive and pushing things to the point where they feel like they're going to break and then they break and you keep going. Like I was all, I always felt like I was always chasing that. Um, you know, I, I grew up on cock rock, you know, like Motley Crue and Poison was my first show. And then that morphed into grunge, which turned things into more distorted and a little bit more pushing the envelope a little bit further. And then kind of, as I got into hardcore and, and even heavy metal and stuff, I was always looking for that pushing the envelope and just like shredding the envelope and, and popping things wide open. Just out of curiosity, what instrument do you play? So you, you, you're doing bands and stuff as well. I'm a drummer. I play drums. Oh man. That's like the ultimate, uh, you know, instrument for punishment and getting your anger out for sure. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. We, we, we took a lot of influence, uh, Kind of my, my college my college metal band hardcore metal band kind of took a lot of influence from Dead Guy for sure, especially along with like the, you know the the work ethic of it all pun intended you know of just stripped down you know no no hardcore uh, uniform you know my friends wore those fucking goddamn Snapcase jerseys I was like why I'm like what the where the fuck is the crossover between hardcore and basketball I'm like I don't get it I don't like it. You know, and this was all, you know, this was in the Adidas era as well. You know, everybody was wearing Adidas, listening to corn. So, you know, it was, uh, it was a lot of stuff going on in those days. A lot to ping pong off of. Yeah, it's funny you bring that up about the basketball sports crossover with hardcore music. And I think like Dead Guy in a lot of ways were kind of like going back to the essence of like punk rock music. You know what I mean? In a lot of ways where it's people on the outside, you know, with different ideas about things with uh, independent thoughts and uh, just like that outsider mentality. Cause like in early, the early nineties, like hardcore music had gotten very much what you mentioned as the uniform, you know? And I think that's kind of what really attracted me to the band as well is that they were like working outside of the box, you know, and they're referencing all these things that I, th that was really important to me when I was a kid, like black flag, minor threat, you know, some of the bands you mentioned too. Yeah, it was it was refreshing, and then you know, we, you couldn't see what they looked like even. So, but you you could tell by that one little picture that they weren't. You could tell by the fact that there were no pictures that they weren't in it for the uniform. You know. Yeah, exactly. Now the the day of the uh, of of the um, the reunion. Now that seeing them play live again, what was what was that like for you after all this work on the documentary? That was I was giddy as fuck. You know, I I watched them sound check. Uh, and I was just like, so excited just for, just so excited for the whole thing. You know, like it was quite a emotional arc to get them from, you know, an outline of a documentary to them being on a gigantic stage, you know, on a gigantic PA on, on, you know, 2021's equipment, you know, like big speakers and like sounded awesome. You know, like I, 
I went through so many dead guy videos where the sound is just atrocious. Yeah. Uh, and that's just how it was, you know, not only sound equipment, but recording equipment. So just to, to have it all there, it was like, I was, I was super giddy. I, I was very happy for them to be able to do it. Uh, it was, you know, a huge sense of relief. Uh, you know, a, a bit of an accomplishment. It was, uh, it was a lot of work went into getting it there and even, and obviously from them. Yeah, you know, it's funny because like I, I kind of see the documentary as like the linchpin for this whole thing. Really, I mean, I, I it's doubtful that they would have ever played together if it was not for this. Right. Yeah. They, I mean, they weren't even going to play together after the documentary. You know, it was. It really was like, it, you know, w- with that band, you know, from my like documentarian position, it was like. It was like they closed the book emotionally in 1995, right? Everybody was like, fuck this guy, fuck that guy, we're doing our own things. And like that was it, right? And then it just, the book just opened back up in 2018 or 2019. And they were just like, they were on the exact same page that they were on, you know, down to the sentence. So it's, it's you know, bygones were bygones, but it was it was less about forgiveness and more about they just, they just took off in their own directions and really never looked back. And it took them a bit of, of warming up to each other, almost, almost to the point of like, uh, okay, who's going to move first? You know, like who's, who's going to say yes to a show first? Or who's going to say no to, uh, you know, a show? Or who's going to say yes to an interview? Like who's going to, you know, it was like a, it almost felt like they were, they were waiting for someone else to kind of make the move. Um, as to as to how they were going to progress. So the fact that they pulled it all together, and, and you know, kudos to Dave. He really is the, kind of the quarterback of that band. He he did he did pull them all together, and uh, you know, eventually they all kind of warmed back up to each other and got got back into the room. What, what's apparent in the documentary is that animosity. You can you can feel it throughout the documentary in the early part. That's sort of lying just beneath the surface with everybody. You know. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it was, you know, we, Dave and I, you know, we shot a lot of interviews just to kind of, to keep shooting and to get the backstory and to, you know, just start to have some things to work with. You know, er, early cuts of the documentary were like 85% Dave. I had to, I had to really, I had to trim it back quite a bit. Um, And, you know, as we got more, more voices, but, you know, when they all got in, it's, it was, it was pretty cool, and you could you could tell that they were happy to see each other, and that you know bygones were bygones, and they were they were ready to revisit the fun stuff and forget about the shitty stuff. Yeah, because some there are definitely people out there in various bands that won't ever let stuff like that go, and it's refreshing to see that, you know. Yeah. I'm, yeah I mean, was, immediately, uh, I'm thinking of Dave Mustaine and Metallica, actually. Uh. <laughs> right. Right, you know, there's lots of there's other bands that I've you know I've pitched documentaries to them, and they're like, I, you know, I don't think I could ever work with that person again, you know. So we'll, we'll see. Yeah, making music, man, is such an emotional thing, and you know, and and it's it's one of those things where there's there's kind of like no rule book to do it yet, and that's why like so many people's feelings get hurt during the whole process because like not everything works for every individual. And, you know, some bands are great because it's the work of one guy or it's a collaboration between everyone and then one guy leaves and it's not the same. And it's so complicated, more so than any interpersonal relationship that only two people can have. You have like four or sometimes five people involved. So, right. You know, and they were they were in their early 20s, you know, like, yeah, you know, people don't know shit in their 20s, especially about, you know, emotions and how things work and and working with people at, at at a big on a big level. You had a bunch of uh, supplemental interviews. Uh, how hard was it to catch, you know, capture everyone there and get everyone, you know, lined out? And, you know, you had, you know, you mentioned Randy Blythe. You had, you know, I know that you had um, my, my friends from Cable, uh, Bernie and Randy were, were, you know, were, were part of that as well. So how, how yeah. difficult was it to get people to commit to, the, to uh, being in the documentary? Honestly, it was like, it was, a, it was a hard no thanks or a hard fuck yes. Really? It was, yeah, it was... <laughs> Uh, there was there was one there was one person who was like on the fence and he didn't end up making it in but that's for some different reasons but yeah it was it was either like no nah, no thanks or like fuck yes tell me a time I'm ready you know 
but you know, lining, <clears throat> getting everybody lined up on Zoom, and getting, uh, you know, some people had camera people that were, you know, that were neighbors or something, and everybody was down in the industry. So if anybody could could get a cameraman, that was awesome. Um, but yeah, just a lot of the Zoom stuff, you know, it was tricky. It, it was, you know, this we shot a lot of it before Zoom was everything. Now, you know, now we're two years into it. Now Zoom is everything. So this was kind of at the at the beginning of that. Um, you know, I was having people set up. I'm like, do you have an iPhone? Can you just set up the iPhone in the in the crook of your of your laptop so that I can at least have like a better audio source than the zoom call. And then maybe I'll have a second shot to cut to, but you know, not a lot of people did, or, you know, people were like, I'm using my iPhone for this and this is all I have. And we just kind of had to be like, all right, this is, this is it. We're just going to go with it. And at first I was very leery of it. Um, but it really ended up adding this element of, comfortability comfortability with the people that I interviewed because they weren't set up in front of a camera in a studio with a bunch of lights and an audio guy tucking a mic into their shirt. They were just sitting in their living room ready to talk about dead guy. So it was really, it was really interesting. The, the uh, authentic, authenticity that came out of the people as they were speaking. And I think that had a lot to do with the fact that we were doing it over zoom. Yeah, I could see that. You're just you're in your you know your familiar surroundings, and you're you're more comfortable. I can see that people being more candid in a scenario like that. Yeah, and it was funny. Like you know, like Steve Evitz had literally never used a Zoom before. You know, like it, it's it's in the cold open of the documentary. But he had never you know he's flipping his his phone back and forth, and it's you know the orientations flipping back and forth. And after a couple that happened with a couple people, and I was like, oh, that's these are gonna I'm gonna use these as little intros or little, you know, kind of little transition pieces. Cause it's funny. It's, it's a, it became, it, it became a documentary also about making a documentary in, you know, a, a global pandemic. Yeah. And I was thinking that too, because um, that, that's kind of going to be like a, like a timestamp for a lot of these things that come out around this time is, uh, oh yeah. I remember like, hopefully, Hopefully in a few years we can look back and be like, oh, yeah, that's that time we just went through when no one was able to be in the same room together. And we used this thing called Zoom, which, you know, very few people had even been exposed to prior to this. It's going to give it this like very unique timestamp. Right. It was funny. Uh, Keith Buckley from uh, Every Time I Die, he's a huge fan and he was on the list early. And he was one of the first people I interviewed. I talked to about interviewing. And I, I tried to catch him. I tried to catch him when he came to New York. He, he couldn't make the time. Um, and he's like, how about we just do it over Zoom? And I was like, mm, I don't want to do it over Zoom. You know, I'm hoping this will show on a big screen one day. I don't want Zoom footage on a big screen. Well, lo and behold, uh, that was actually the way we did a big chunk of the documentary. <laughs> it was funny. to. I told him that, too. I was like, you remember when you suggested Zoom? Like, before the pandemic, you suggested we shoot this on Zoom. That's funny. Yeah, it's. Uh, I, I mean, just a quick aside. There, there was a horror movie that came out last year called The Host, I think, and that was all shot on Zoom. Oh wow! It's, <laughs> it's, it's a fun. It was kind of fun. It was, it was fun to do it that way, as you know, as a, as a video maker and a videographer, filmmaker, all sorts of things. It's fun to be forced into new ways to do things because it, it, it makes you think outside of the box. How long is but, the cut of the current cut of the movie right now? It's like what? Does it, I think it's over ninety minutes, isn't it? Uh, yeah, it's an hour and a half. Hour and a half. Yeah. One one twenty nine thirty. Right. Yeah. That's that's uh, like how hard was it to cut down to that duration, like that program length? I imagine it must have been really hard to keep to that that format. Yeah, it was it, it was hard. I my originally I wanted it under an hour. Wow. Um, because I you know. People don't watch things for that long anymore. You know, like I watched that uh, Slave to the Grind documentary about Grindcore. And I was like, I love that music, but I couldn't finish the documentary because it's like I don't, you know, my, I just didn't have that much time in one spot to sit and, and watch it, you know. Right. Um, so that was my idea was to keep it that short. But I, I, I kind of abandoned that. My first cut was like three and a half hours long. 
um, there was a lot of cool stuff. Like there was a lot of fun stuff spoken about. We interviewed people, and this will probably be on the extras when the DVD comes out. We talked at length with people about the fashion of those days. Oh yeah, and to you know to hear like Jacob Bannon talking about Jenko jeans is just it's funny, you know. And a lot of it was like it, it really people lit up when you asked him that question, you know, like what the fuck was with the backpacks? Like why did everybody have a backpack? You know. <laughs> You got to put your so, stuff in there, man. Yeah, so that that'll be on the extras, and we talked about uh, we talked at length about touring, you know, during those times, which ended up being like a you know forty five seconds in the documentary. Um, yeah, all all sorts of stuff we talked about that just you know just things just have to hit the floor. It's just the way it is. Real quick about the back t- backpacks. The uh, yes, yes. <laughs> back then, man, it. like if you lived in a city. You know, like New York or Boston or something like that back in the 90s. I think that you were mostly on foot or on a bike. And that's, in my experience, where the backpack, backpacks came from. I know that I had right. like a courier bag or something like that because I was, I was always on foot. You know what I mean? Like I didn't really drive around. I was on the subway or walking or whatever. You know what I mean? So that's are you, my, are that's you my de- take on are it. You def- are you defending the uh, backpack yeah, uh, fashion. Yeah, I am actually. I think, uh, <laughs> but you know, it, it actually did become kind of a thing though, because like, I, I do remember having like that was like a fashion thing, like a, what what kind of backpack you had. But you know, a lot of times, like in my experience, you know, you'd be I would be at work, you know, at the warehouse or wherever the hell I was working. I have my lunch in there and like you know whatever, like a hoodie, and then I would go to a show or go somewhere right after work, and I would have all my gear with me that I needed to take out into the world. You know what I mean? Right. So I don't know. Whatever. Yeah, I was, you know, I was from Michigan. We just drove everywhere. Yeah. So you know, you always had a car to throw it in, <laughs> and then if we drove to Detroit, you would just pay somebody to watch your car. <laughs> so I was going to ask you, and you already kind of t- covered it. Was um, so do you you foresee a DVD slash Blu-ray release of this at some point? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, it's there's been a lot of interest in this documentary and people are wanting to show it. Um, so I, I'd love for it to, to, to hit as many theaters as possible. I just think that's just like a neat way to, uh, to show a movie. I, I, I never really expected it to be this extra, like this, I, I don't mean big, like popular, but like big, like I never meant it for it to be such a big production. So for it to have its due process out in the world, uh, I think it's very neat, and we're gonna, you know, we're gonna submit it to some festivals. And uh, actually, it's playing in Brooklyn on Wednesday, November seventeenth at seven thirty at Nighthawk Cinemas, Williamsburg. Uh, that's a great spot, man. I, um, yeah, a friend of mine actually texted me about that because uh, you know he he was a friend from back back in the day, and he was like, oh yeah, that Dead Guy documentary is playing here in Brooklyn in a couple weeks, so that's cool. Yeah, it's uh, we're very excited about that. They, you know, they contacted me about putting that up, um, so it was really cool. But yeah, it'll be out on DVD, Blu-ray. Well, Blu-ray, not DVD, technically. Um, and then I have actually some, I have some unseen, full unseen doc, uh, dead guy sets. Oh, that I will put on like a special features disc for sure. Um, I have one from the original lineup, and then Dave actually found a bunch of others from from some of the other later versions. Uh, because I'm I'm kind of anti YouTube. I don't YouTube has been fleecing creators for a decade, and uh, you know I, I thank them for the stuff that I have watched on YouTube, but they have taken their fair share from bands and content creators. So is is it, as long as it stays off YouTube the better with anything that ever comes out of my office again <laughs> for that matter yeah that's an interesting point that you brought up because uh, I also have this aversion to YouTube these days and it has a lot more to do with like their kind of weird censorship that they have of things right you know and and like yeah, look I mean I don't I don't agree with you know there's a lot that I don't agree with but the one thing I primarily don't agree with is any form of censorship and um you know when when that's always the signs of a failing society in my opinion you know right when the, the onset of some kind of uh repression rears its head 
Right. So, no, I, I, yeah. I, I totally agree. I, I feel like the world should and, and will eventually move to more of a decentralized uh, system where kind of we all pitch in our little bit to, uh, so everybody can have a little piece instead of giving it all to YouTube or giving it all to Facebook. Like with the, um, with the Facebook Live, you know, people going live, and I don't want to insult anybody, this is just my take on it, with, you know, you go Facebook Live, your friends band, you know, from St. Vitus or whatever. In essence, you are stealing from your friends band and giving it to Facebook. And they can then just do whatever they want with it. And it's, it becomes a point where you're just like, you're just giving away all of your creative content uh, to, the, to the biggest corporations we have in the space, you know? And to me, that needs a revisiting. It, it need, we need to re- reimagine how those sort of things uh, work. You know, that's an interesting point as well. Um, and it's kind of relevant since we're talking about a band that uh, was operating during, uh, during the 90s when people still had this sense of individuality and independence and anti-corporate, you know, sort of ideologies, which in the last 20 years or so, uh, I feel like young people might have, they, they don't see it the same way. Like they just look at things as being free and clear and okay, yeah, I should be able to put something up and the world can see it. Uh, but there also is a downside to that and a compromise that if you use a platform that is a free form platform like that controlled by one organization and you're agreeing to their, uh, their rules, then they also, you also are, are, are open, you're wide open to them taking down your content or, or you know, somehow censoring it or whatever and uh, i think like what i would like to see is kind of like the way things sort of were back in the day where you would go to one particular place that the either the artist or a collective of artists ran and curated and you would you know pay or figure out some fair trade to get that content like i think that might be where things are moving these days yeah, no, I, I totally agree. There's there's some systems in place in, in the video side of it. Um, yeah, it, it's it's a complicated issue. So it's you know, like I said, I I thank I thank YouTube for the you know for letting me watch ridiculous things. Um, but you know, it's also something I might have paid forty nine cents for. You know, and that forty nine cents could go to the content creator and yeah. not just becoming a uh, you know not just becoming like a, a product for their advertising campaign, you know, and uh, meat for their algorithm. You know? Yeah. Well, that, that's exactly like, you know, I, I, what comes to mind right now is SST used to have these bumper stickers, like corporate rock sucks and all this stuff, yeah. you know? And it's like, yeah, it's like the ultimate regression back to that ideology of, you know, like de de dead Kennedy's and, you know, Jello Biafra's whole thing about like, you know, selling products and advertising and funding things through corporations. And that's something that we've gotten away from. And I think it's kind of good in a way that this, this censorship and these like, you know, weird things that are happening with media are making people rethink these, these, you know, these, uh, these methods, you know, that's, that's pretty cool. Right. Absolutely. You know, and we're, we're, we're in an age now where digital micropayments are possible and, and relatively easy. So you could, you could put something up for, you know, for instance, 29 cents, you know, in Bitcoin, you know, you, you pay 500 sats for it, you know, and it, it's, it's an easy and quick way to pay content creators um, for, for the work that they do. And there's ways to split it with the band so that the band gets it or the band can own their own content. Imagine that a band owning their own stuff. Well, I mean, that that's actually here pretty much. I mean, there's, you know, Bandcamp is like that. I mean, that's, there was an artist, I can't remember his name. Um, he was um, he's a British guy. And he's, his whole thing is controlled by himself. And he just has a band camp and that's it. And right. everything's produced by himself. And it used to be that way. I felt like back, you know, back in the 80s and 90s was like it, that sort of independence kind of uh, reared its head. You know, and I think it's nowadays it's easier now because you can do everything pretty much with your laptop, you know, and produce a whole album by yourself, essentially. 
Right. Yeah. No, I, I like it. I like where it's going. I like, I like seeing people getting to work and putting their own stuff out there and not having to use gatekeepers. So let me ask you about this, uh, this Blu-ray release. Um, oh yeah, sure. Yeah. The, you know, is there going to be like a couple of options? Like, you know how, like, you know, sometimes you'll, you'll like, for example, the Swans documentary, there's like, uh, you know, the, 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 the bargain one where it's just the movie. And then there's like the deluxe package that has all this extra stuff in it. So if, if you just want to watch the movie, you can just get like, okay, I want to spend like 20 bucks and just get this. Or I can get this deluxe blown out package with like a poster and like these extra sets and all this footage, additional, you know, disc and that kind of stuff. Is that, is that what you're thinking? Uh, that's not what I was thinking, but I like that idea a lot. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, th- it also depends on, a, you know, if there's any sort of distribution deal to be had. If someone, if we can work out a, a deal with a distributor that wants to handle all of that sort of thing, then that's something we could work out with them. If it's going to be me, you know, in my Brooklyn apartment, you know, dubbing, dubbing Blu-rays or, you know, sending them off to get, to get mass printed and then sending them out myself, I'll probably just keep it to like one version. Right. Um, but no, that, that is a good idea. I like that idea. That's um, the kind of stuff I'm into, man. It's like, you know, I, I, like when the Swans documentary came out, of course I got like, you know, the one that's got all the extra stuff on it, you know? Right. We are also, what I really would love to do is make a VHS of it. I would probably buy that too. Yeah, I think. Because <laughs> that's A, fucking hilarious. Uh, and B, just like, you know, following in the, in the footsteps of the cassette boom that's going on right now. Put it out on a tape. You know, it's funny you mentioned cassettes because uh, just just in the last month or so, I purchased a uh, a DAT uh, recorder or a DAT player rather, and because uh, I have like shoe boxes filled with DATs from the '90s, and I know awesome. that that those things fall apart, man. Like if you right. wait too long, those things disintegrate, and cassettes are remarkably hardy and hold up over the years. So, you know, there might be something to this uh, analog revisitation. Yeah, I like it. And people like collectibles, you know. it's and A cassette is smaller than a record and takes less, you have to take less care, you know. You don't, you don't have to take so much care to, uh, to take care of it. Yeah. Now, what about streaming? Are there streaming services? Is there any, you know, any, any play with that? Uh, yeah, I think that that would also go kind of hand in hand with the distribution deal to okay. see how that would play out. It's not it's not incredibly difficult to put out something on Amazon by yourself. Um, it's a little tedious, but it's not impossible. Uh, you know, I also have my website Fort.media that's that I could I could host it on there and leave it up there forever as well. And again, cut out the middleman and just you know you could just come to my website and do it there. Um, I understand people want you know their People want their uh, what they're used to and things like that, which I understand. So it's definitely something we're we're going to look into. I think that would come down to, like I said, the distribution deal. If we can get anything like that, I'm sure that sort of comes in that sort of package. Now uh, it's funny. I was uh, another question I had was was about Fourth Media, and I just want to talk a little bit about that. That's is that that's your production company, correct? Yeah. Yep. How long have you been doing that? That I started that in 2015. Um, you know, I've been I've been doing music videos and and all sorts of you know visual stuff. I shoot a lot of well, I used to shoot a lot of live bands. I was even doing live like live streaming. I uh, did a couple from St. Vitus and a couple from a studio in Hoboken that I work with. Um, so I've always been shooting bands. I was you know I do photography when I can. Um, you know, live band photography. That's that's actually where I started was black and white 35 millimeter photography shooting Dillinger in the shelter in Detroit. Um, stuff like that. So I've always kind of been around music, but I incorporated in 2015 to kind of fit along with my other career, uh, my other career path of just kind of being an overall production company. We do all sorts of stuff. I saw that you, uh, you did something with uh, Beast of the Field and uh, Temple of Void, which are yeah. like Michigan-based bands that I'm familiar with. Yeah. Oh, you like Beast in the Field? Yeah, we actually... Um, the band I play in, uh, Tombs, we, re- yeah. we played with them uh, pff, nah, maybe a long time ago. We were, we were wrapping up. We were supporting some other band, and then we had a couple of dates on our own to get back to New York, and one of those dates was in uh, Detroit. 
and I got a chance. And that they they were on the bill, and I was like, man, this guy, these guys are so unbelievably heavy. So good. I love that band. Yeah, those guys are those guys are old old friends. And uh, Temple of Void too. We did a, I did their music video. They were they were on a, the same Michigan label we were on, Sour Ghost Records, uh, my old band. So, yeah, always a always a treat to work with friends. You know. Yeah, Temple of yeah. Void's pretty awesome too. Uh, they are. There, there's um, oh man, the name escapes me. I should have wrote this down. There's another band associated with them that I like too. That's uh. It's like a member of that band, or there's a couple of members from Temple of Void that are in this other metal band that I, oh man, I got, I should have prepared. Uh, Hellmouth. That's it. Yes. Yep. Yep. There you go. Okay. Classic. I, I lived in Detroit for quite. I've been I've been in New York for about 13 years now, but I spent a lot of time in Detroit. Detroit is pretty cool, man. I I, uh, you know, it's funny. Like I don't, I didn't really have a sense for Detroit really because it's. You know, I've been touring for a long time, man, and, and like, you know, we always roll through Detroit, and I don't have any real, I haven't had any real um, specific memories about that city until maybe 2008, maybe, and I think things kind of were, are more on the upswing. And the last couple of times I've been, been to Detroit, it's been really cool. Yeah, it's a, it's a nice place. I've actually, I haven't been to actual Detroit in a while. All my family lives in West Michigan still, so if I go back, I usually just head straight back to the West Coast. But, um, yeah, I love it. It's cheap, you know, nice casino, nice sporting event, you know, sporting venues. Fox Theater is amazing. State Theater is amazing. It's a super cool place. I like it. Yeah. Yeah, there was, uh, there was like, a venue out there that was, like, uh, I think it's called, like, the, the L Room or the M Room or something like that. that uh, it's almost like St. Vitus. It has like this very uh, interior design, very very deliberate sort of uh, you know design sense to it. It's like a really cool spot. Right. Yeah. It's really a place where you can. It's it's cheap. So you know, labor is cheap. You know, space is cheap. So you can really spread out and, and do things that you want to do, and you can do them how you want to do them. And yeah. also, there's bar- there's barely any cops around, so that's always a plus. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And it's still, it's funny because I remember, I think it was the night that we played at this venue whose name I can't remember right now, but it was, um, <laughs> we were going to the hotel room and uh, <laughs> I put in, in uh, the address to the hotel in Waze. So, um, yeah. you know, it doesn't take, it takes you through the most direct as the crow flies uh, route. Right. But it definitely took us through some areas that were like these post-apocalyptic, uh, no, yeah. no streetlights. Like you can see nature like reclaiming some of the pavement and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah, that was definitely an experience. Yeah, they shut off a chunk of the power grid a bunch of years ago. That's probably the part of, uh, <laughs> the part of town we drove through. You yeah, can always count on ways to give you like some random way to get someplace. Right. Yeah, no, you stay, you stay on the highways. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I've, no, I've never really had any problems in Detroit. It's you, you hear a lot of horror stories, and obviously things can happen. But bad things can happen anywhere. So yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, just we live. You you live in in Brooklyn. I used to live in Brooklyn. Like you know, New York City is what it is too. You know. Yeah, I always say that the difference is in New York City. At least there's people around to hear you scream. <laughs> you know, they they might not help you, but at least they're there. In Detroit, it's like there's just nobody. There's just nobody around. You know. Yeah, there are definitely parts of Bushwick that used to be like that, where um, I remember like a long time ago, I was like checking out like some sort of shared roommate loft situation, like way out in Bushwick. And uh, I got off at Johnson Street and I, I stepped out of the subway and like no one got off the train. I Just me. I go up <laughs> and it was like complete silence, you know, and streetlights and right. just desolation. And I'm like, okay, I hope I'm uh, going the right way, you know. And, and now I went out there uh, a couple weekends ago. I was in Bushwick, and it was like, you know, that place is totally different now. You know? Yeah, that place popped right. I lived out on way out on Wilson, the Wilson stop for years. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, now there's like a coffee shop and a bar. I was like, wow, things, <laughs> things change, man. Yeah. So the Philly date, was that, was that, that was the world premiere of the documentary, right? That was it. Yep, that was the world premiere, and not not a lot of people had seen it, even like on inner circles. Um, I showed it to Crispy because he wanted to make sure he didn't say anything stupid, um, and uh, I should. Dave saw like an earlier cut, 
but yeah, pretty much nobody had seen it. You know, Tim didn't. Tim really. Tim didn't want to because Tim is a true artist and doesn't want to interfere with anybody else's vision. Right. So he didn't. He didn't really want. He didn't want to see it so that he didn't have anything to say about it. Um, so yeah, just like even the producer Nathaniel had seen. You know, Nathaniel Shannon had seen like one cut that wasn't. It was like the fine cut. You know, not quite the picture lock. So. It was pretty, uh, yeah, not a lot of people had seen it. What other uh, showings do you have coming up? Because I, I think I saw, like, a, you got a bunch of stuff lined up at this point. Yeah, we have uh, November 5th in uh, Ithaca, New York. Um, and then Minneapolis, it's playing at the Sound Unseen um, document or movie festival as an official selection. Uh, they, they, they have actually been courting this documentary since the first trailer dropped. They're like, we want to show your documentary. I was like, do you want to see it first? You know, in case it's not good. You know, but, um, so that's exciting. Those guys are super nice. And then, yeah, the Brooklyn date is uh, November 17th, uh, Wednesday. And then we have a couple others. I'm, I'm going to submit to South by Southwest. I think I might have already broken their rules on what can be allowed in their festival, but I might try to get it in there anyways. What kind of, um, what kind of yeah. rules do they have? They have, like, you're not supposed to show it anywhere, oh, technically. Right. Okay. Yeah. Uh, you know, private showings and crew showings are okay, but I'm not sure if they'll disqualify it because it's already in a film festival. But on the other hand, I think it's like, it would be a Texas, it would be the Texas premiere. So... I don't know. It's all, it's a, it's a whole world that, you know, I never really, you know, I, I didn't set out to be like a documentarian, you know, like I, you know, I always work with music and I do videos and stuff like that, but I never really expected to like take on this project and then have to like, you know, get it out to the rest of the world. This is all like a brand new, a brand new path for me. That's fun. It's awesome. Um, we're just trying to, trying to plug through it as hard as I can. So we'll, we'll have some, we've got some contacts, you know, people all over the place have been, um, you know, reaching out, you know, so some people in Detroit are interested in doing it. And some people in uh, Buffalo, the guys from Snapcase are, you know, put me in contact with somebody out there. Um, and then possibly Chicago, possibly Phoenix. Um, and then an LA, we're going to have an LA screening, which is still unconfirmed. It's confirmed, but it's not completely fleshed out yet, so I won't say anything about that yet. Well, that that would be uh, that would fit in nicely because there's the uh, the decibel West Coast date with Dead Guy. Yes, indeed. Yeah, so that that would work out really well then. Yeah, we'll we'll see. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, those guys, uh, Aaron and Albert, were awesome in in helping promote that documentary and just the fact that they you know, attached it to their festival was just such, it was, it was like an honor. Like I read that, you know, I love decibel magazine. They do so much for heavy music. It was just like so cool for those guys to really step it up and put and, and help us really put it out there. They, they really did get it, get it over the next big hump for sure. Had you met Albert prior to all this? No, nope. Uh, Dave kind of made, Dave made the introduction, um, Dave from Dead Guy, because he had worked with them on the Hall of Fame thing. Yeah. And he knew they were big fans, so he said, you know, we should really, you know, you know, ping them and see if they want to help out. And I was like, absolutely. So, yeah, they really pushed that first trailer out there. Yeah, they're good like that, man. Albert knows what's up. Like, he's, you know what I mean? It's not like, there's other, other magazines out there. I'm not going to name names because they sometimes give me money to write stuff for them. But, uh, sure. But, you know, they, they missed the point, I think. You know, and and uh, Decibel for sure understands like what what the deal is with like real music. So I always give those guys props. Yeah, and they put they put that festival together. Like that's a lot. There's a lot of moving parts in that beer and beer and metal festival, and they you know handle it with uh, style and grace. Yeah, that was a lot of fun, man. Um, you know, I, once again, it was a little overwhelming at first. You know, but I think that. Uh, you know, the, the one-two punch of the premiere and the Decibel Fest. I, I only went to the, the Saturday one. Uh, kind of got me primed up for entering the world again and going out there and experiencing life. You know, it was kind of cool. Right. It's like you take, you take that, first, uh, 
that first test, that first COVID test after it all. I was like, oh, holy shit. I did all that and didn't get COVID. All right. Well, I've been getting tested every two weeks, actually, since the beginning oh, of this wow. thing. Yeah, there's, there was a, you know, there's a public service announcement. <laughs> um, yeah, there's a program out there called Project Baseline where I signed up like right when this happened and um, it's free testing. You know, every two weeks you can go and every 14 days you're eligible to get retested. So I've just been doing that. And still, even with the vaccination, I've still been getting tested. Nice. That's, it's important to keep, the, keep track of the numbers. Yeah, you know, so far, so good. So far, I haven't, you know, been infected by anything. So that's good. Yeah. I mean, so, summer of 2020, I was like, I literally barely left my apartment. I was just, I, I, I pulled up a, the, the interview calendar from like July of last year. And we had an, basically had a Zoom interview every day for like an entire month. Like, so, and then that on top of my other job, it was like, I basically just worked, just worked on stuff that whole time. So I didn't really, I barely went out last year. Yeah, well, there was there was nowhere to go, really. <laughs> you know, right. I mean, for most of the year, it was like everything was shut down, like even, you know, restaurants or wherever. It was really, there was nowhere to go. And uh, Yeah, it was, a, it was a weird time, man. Did you hear about, like, the fireworks going off at 1 o'clock in the morning every night in, in, in Brooklyn? Oh, um, see, I didn't live in Brooklyn in 2020. I moved out to Jersey. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think people did tell me about that at 1 a.m. It was nuts. It was fucking nuts. It was like every night at one o'clock on the dot. Did did what was that all about? Like what? I, uh, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I don't know how far down the rabbit hole you want to go, but it was like, it was disturbing the public, and I and I'm not sure that the public was doing it. Well, then, uh, then uh, who who was doing it? Do you think? Uh, probably law enforcement. Hmm. Okay. It, it wasn't. Because for one, where do you get that many fireworks? Yeah, like, that's obviously, like a expense. You can go to Pennsylvania, yeah. but th these were fucking big fireworks. These weren't like bottle rockets. They were like fucking mortars, you know. So do you think there was some kind of a nefarious plot behind all this? I do, Mike. I always think there's a nefarious plot against everything. Huh, okay. I mean, I tend to agree with you. I think that uh, <laughs> most things are, are premeditated that go on on a large scale, you know. Yeah, it was it was crazy. It was uh, it seemed too. It seemed too calculated to be. The public, you know. Wow. See, I wasn't. Aware it was of that. it was during you know it was during the uh, the George Floyd protests. You know, there was a lot. Oh yeah, yeah. Okay, now it's coming. You back. know. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's coming back to me too. That's you know Anyways. it's funny man that that whole year it's it's one of those well. Even up until a week ago, the whole year, even in, even 2021 is actually not so great for me. But uh, I want to forget about all this stuff, man. Honestly, it's like I want to like move on. And it's funny how your your mind um, covers up a lot of these details because they're either traumatic or or too too troubling, you know. Right. Yeah. Exactly. It was. Uh, I guess. Yeah. Everybody is pretty much ready to move on. I'm ready to move on too. Yeah. Totally. But yeah, I was going to ask you if, um, if during the pandemic, like, you know, your professional uh, life was affected by that, but apparently not, I guess you were saying. No, I, I got really, really, really lucky that, you know, I had, I had some, some weeks off intermittently, but I was able to, you know, I left my, I left the office in, you know, March 14th and, you know, I've been working from home pretty much ever since, um, so, yeah, I just, you know, I, I already had all, everything set up to work from home. Um, so, yeah, I just kind of slid, slid right into, slid right into it. I was super lucky that the show that I work on just kept, kept going. You know, we had downtime. We had some problems getting things and we had to re kind of re, like reimagine how we made a show in a pandemic. Um, and it was tricky. It was tricky and challenging, but you know, I was very fortunate to be able to continue to work. And then I would have this, you know, the Dead Guy documentary to work on as well. Plus, I do other, I do other things. Um, I was like live streaming on uh, this website called Theta TV. It was like a Twitch type of website, but I was just throwing up videos and you know, just chat with people about metal and stuff like that. So I was doing that, staying super busy. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah, I did. I did 
I had to like stop doing it. I was like, all right, I need every extra second to finish this documentary. So I kind of, I put that down, but yeah, it was cool. You know, just showing, showing videos and live stuff and a whole bunch of stuff that I've shot. And, you know, people were, people don't like gave me a bunch of videos and I just string them out and, you know, hit play on them and then just kind of chat about it. That's definitely cool. Cause I, I know like when, when things pivoted to being at home for me, I, I was like, I didn't I, I, I didn't know what was going to happen in the next few months. So it was like a lot of stuff got canceled. A lot of things were like indefinitely delayed, you know, and I, I had to kind of like think about even like work being like, OK, you know, we're, we're dead in the water right now. But luckily, things sort of came back, which is good. Yeah. Yeah, it was uh, it was a stressful time. I mean, I I. Like I said, I was lucky to have work, but I didn't always know that I was going to. Yeah. So it was it was almost like a, a double whammy that I still had to work under these new pretenses, but you know I didn't know if that would be gone, you know, next month or whatever. So, um, but no, I was I was very fortunate. Well, hopefully the next few months, uh, you know, will con- everything will continue to improve, and you know, life can become uh, livable again. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. You know, I I have a kid, so I don't get out to metal shows very often. So it was uh, it was good to good to get one in while I could. That's for sure. Yeah. Is there anything else uh, about the documentary that you you want you want to talk about? That I, I think I pretty much cover all the points I had. Yeah, Nathaniel and I drove up to Connecticut, interview, interviewed Bernie and Randy, and then we made our way up to Steve Austin actually, and those were up in Maine, and those were the two of the first interviews that we did we show up at uh steve austin's house he had killed a deer the night before uh had gutted it he had the antlers uh hanging out on the tree it was it was a good time um steve austin is a is a wealth of information and insight and then we got some lobster rolls on the way home tourist style uh, everybody figure out a way to watch it so that uh, I can so it can be a success and I can make another one I've got I've got two ideas on what I want to do next for documentaries so one one is a band who I will not name but the other one is uh, I'd love to do a Steve Evitz documentary just about everything that he did out of Tracks East you know like you know that all the pretty much the entire oh, yeah. victory catalog you know Plus a bunch of like a lot of other 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 stuff. So, um, yeah, definitely. So yeah, please just uh, go to Fourth Dot Media. Try to figure out where you can watch it. Keep an eye out for all the updates. Buy a poster. We got posters for sale. Posters and stickers. Um, yeah, that's awesome, man. Yeah, that Steve Evitz thing would be great because like that guy. There is that period of time in the '90s, you know, into the early part of this of the 21st century, where that it, the discography that that guy produced is pretty stunning. You know, it's insane. Yeah. Even 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 that little the little blurb in the documentary where he talks about you know all the bands that recorded on that one bass. You know, it's like holy shit! Like those are some of the best hardcore records ever. You know, <laughs> yeah. And they all used his bass guitar for it. You know, it's really and he's super fun to talk to. That dude's super nice too. Yeah, I always wanted to record with him, but I never, never had the opportunity. Believe it or not, you know. And it's, yeah, he's out. In, he's out in L.A. now. Yeah, but you he's know, still, you know, he's still working. Yeah, there just would have been something really cool about doing something at Tracks East because so many bands I love and friends and you know, like especially in the Northeast, you know, like Jersey, New York area. A lot, of, tons of those. That, that was kind of the goal. With a lot of those bands was to record it at Tracks East and work with Steve. Right. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So keep a lookout for that. But thanks, yeah, thanks for having me on, man. It was good to talk to you. It was good to see you at the documentary. I'm a big yeah. anodyne, was a big anodyne fan, love too. So <laughs> wow, yeah. you know, it's funny, yeah, we, man, that people bring that band up every now and then. It's it's. Uh, I'm glad people, uh, you know, discovered them or are discovering them now. Definitely. But you know, I told you I was I was looking for things that were you know, blasting out of the envelope, and that that band was definitely one of them. Have you heard that band? Um, Frontierer, have you heard that band? Are, are they a newer band? Yeah, they're a new band. They're from the huh. UK. I Frontierer, haven't. their new record's fucking brutal. Huh. It's in that kind of vein, vein that like chaotic sort of vein. Chaotic, yeah, and it's got like a, 
it's got newer newer tinges to it. It's super noisy and super heavy, uh, but it's got kind of that more. It's just it's very abrasive and fucking brutal. And their new record just fucking kills. I was just listening into it today. I was like, holy shit. Frontierer. Yeah, Frontierer. I have to look into that for sure. Un Unloved is the name of their uh, new record. They got three records total, I believe. I will, I will look them up on Bandcamp because that's how I consume music these days. I just buy people's stuff on Bandcamp. That's good. You know, and I wanted to clarify, I'm not mad at Bandcamp. Bandcamp are doing good things. <laughs> <laughs> nah, they're great, man. I, I you know, that's, that's the way to go, man. If you, um, you know, you're out, especially if you're one of these guys who has like a project where they just do by themselves or even if you're any, anyone, actually, if you have a band and you want to get your music out there to people and, and, that's the way to go, I think, really. Yeah, absolutely. It's it just takes a link, you know. Yeah, and before you know, like a, a label can actually uh, tie you into some kind of agreement, you should get on top of that as an independent artist for sure. Right. Yeah. But you know, if you go to share the link, if you're going to share the link on Facebook, they're gonna, you know, you got to promote it, or it's not going to get any. Uh, it's not going to get around anywhere. Yeah, that that's the thing. They get you. Somewhere along crazy. the line, you have to you have to like you have to trade with the enemy. You know, it's like goddamn it, Facebook. You know, like everything that I do. You know, everything. Like, just let me promote my stupid movie. Come on. <laughs> well, William, thanks for your time. And thank um, you, sir. Yeah, man. I'm looking forward to more news about the documentary. Awesome. Yeah, we're gonna keep we're keeping moving on it. We're gonna keep uh, pushing forward into 2022, and hopefully, have some cool stuff coming up next. Awesome, man. Thanks a lot. Cool, brother. Thanks. I tried to listen, I tried to fit!